Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest with us and Mr. Alex Danolo from Mavdon Investments. Before we get started, I want to ask you uh, a real quick favor. If you're getting any value out of this podcast, would you please go over to iTunes and leave me a review? Uh, it means the absolute world to me, and I promise I'll keep recording if you keep posting reviews. So, so thank you so much uh, for those reviews of the show. All right, let's dive in. Alex is the founder of Mavdon Investments, founded in 2019. He has a $15 million portfolio of commercial real estate, totaling over 600 units, with a specialty in mobile home parks and RV parks. Welcome to the show, Alex. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. It's yeah, it's, I was just looking at our previous episode earlier today. It's been two and a half years since you've been on. I know a lot has changed, but maybe you can start out by just telling us a little bit about your story, reminding us kind of how you got into manufactured housing communities, and then maybe tailing that with how, you know, how Mavdon, you know, what's changed in the last two and a half years uh, since we interviewed you and Dylan. Yeah, I would say mainly just more tattoos, but <laughs> no. Yeah, so I'll start with your first question, just a quick, quick run through on uh, my trajectory, how I got in the space. Um, I started in construction. That was my, my, first dabble in business, not being an entrepreneur right out of high school, started my construction company and just sort of was self-taught, had some mentors in the space, but was self-taught, a lot of YouTube. And then I started, you know, through that, I was practicing sales and negotiation and how to run a business and grow teams. And, and then, but I was still trading, you know, time for money. And so eventually I started flipping houses, except I was bootstrapping every project doing the work, funding the, so, I, so again, I was trading time for money and there was, so I was like, oh, there's gotta be a better way. By my early twenties, I started hearing about wholesaling online, watching videos, studying, jumped into that and got really gung-ho about it. Started doing deals all over the US and that's how I met Dylan. We were at, you know, going to expos and stuff. We met at an expo and we both had big visions. We were both young and driven. And so, and we complemented each other really well. You know, Dylan was very detail oriented, operational. He was good at growing and managing teams. I was kind of vision driven and, hey, I'll go get investors and find, you know, and we'll, and I'll build kind of the big vision. And so we, we started moving pretty quickly. We did over a million in, in wholesale fees together pretty quickly in like a, about a year, year and a half. And then as the story goes, we bought our first mobile home park in 2019 and kind of never never turned back. We started buying up the whole block of mobile home parks and just really trial by fire. We learned so much. I mean, we were physically flying out there. You know, this was in the Midwest, us living in the Pacific Northwest. We were going out and, you know, personally interviewing site managers and knocking on doors and serving serving notices. And it was great because that first deal is always exciting and, you know, you have a much more intimate relationship. And so we got a really in the trenches style uh, crash course and learned a lot and then, you know, started putting content out there. And that's really how we gained attention from investors. Passive investors was really 
you know, a lot of internet work stuff that got us probably our first three or four deals. And then after that, it was just through Facebook and coming on these podcasts and sharing our stories. And so Dylan and I still get along great since the transition. Actually, I'm I'm possibly buying a wholesale deal from him right now. And yeah, it was, it was just, uh, I wouldn't even say creative differences, but just kind of sort of different goals. You know, we had different goals and what our personal lifestyle goals were. So then that had, that created different business goals and it just made sense to sort of dissect things. So we still champion each other. We still do deals together. And so for me personally, as, as far as where I'm at now, after going out on my own, I sort of, you know, I'm very creative. I'm a visionary. My, my mind's always going. So I, I did sort of, um, I had to build back up my team, get back into acquisition mode and buy mobile home parks. But I also venture off and get these itches to buy like lifestyle type projects and Airbnbs and RV parks. And like I mentioned to you before uh, we start recording, every time I do that, and I run the numbers and I do underwriting and I try and determine the exit strategy. I'm just like, man, this is why we're in the mobile home park industry, you know? So it's just a testament to that of, yeah, it's fun to, you know, do these other projects with, you know, maybe more sexy asset classes, but tons of turnover and more questionable horizons. And so, um, yeah, 2024, you know, we're up, like you said, up above 600 lots again, and we want to double that strategically. We've tightened up our criteria a little bit. It was sort of, anything and everything before, as I think Dylan's mentioned, it was like wastewater treatment plan. We'll take it, you know, anything let's learn, let's get some deals under our belt. Now it's okay. Let's refine that criteria and be a little more specific. I'm not as, I'm not very market specific. Uh, I still buy anywhere, just more deal specific now. So maybe tell us about that. What does your, you know, mobile home park investing strategy look like now compared to, you know, back in 2019 when you bought that first deal? The biggest thing is I really like to keep it as simple as possible. I mean, you can call it a needle on a haystack deal or whatever you want, but I, I tend to find them, but I like, I like high occupancy. I've not, I have not mastered the infill game and I, I will, you know, admit that wholeheartedly. It's just not my cup of tea to be dealing with all that. And as time goes on and I have, you know, and I have executives running, the, you know, in the leasing department and stuff, then we'll look more into that. And of course, we always have marketing out there. And we're always doing infill. And in certain areas, it's a lot easier to have people move their own homes. Like Texas, people just show up with their mobile home. They're like, hey, I'm here. Like, where's the site? You know, it's it, so, but I, I, we're not buying and renovating homes and doing all that. So I like like a 60% occupancy. That's a new metric. And for that same reason, I used to be bullish on, park on home conversions, you know, oh, I don't care how many park on homes there are, you know, we can, we can convert them to tenant on homes. And that's just gotten more difficult <laughs> over time, I feel like. And so we just say, I, it's, it's tough. But right now, we're saying no more than five park on homes. Um, and obviously, we flex on that a little bit, but it's just sort of a criteria what, that, yeah, I think that's like something in the last few years that a lot of operators kind of got lenient with. But like from my experience, when you buy a park with a lot of park-owned homes, and maybe you can shed some light on this as well, like there's turnover. Like some people don't want to own the mobile home. They just want to rent. And so you're going to have turnover and these homes don't come back to you in crystal clean condition. So, you know, we bought a park, 136 lots, all park-owned homes. And, you know, the turnover has been you know, geez, I'd say probably a third of the tenants, you know, over the course of a year now, 
are turning over, right? And we're getting the homes back. So you got to have a lot of crews to get these things rent ready and, and then sell them. And, you know, in some markets, Midwestern markets, the absorption rate, you know, you're not going to be able to sell 20 homes a month in certain markets, right? Like, so it's just, you know, without getting bad eggs in there. So that's just been, it's been tough. And that's one thing that we've gotten a little bit more specific on is less park-owned homes as well. But I'm curious of your experiences. Yeah, same thing. I mean, because it's easy to say, well, no park-owned homes because of the maintenance and all that. But yeah, the turnover is the is the biggest benefit of for me of the tenant-owned homes. I mean, those tenants stay forever. And yeah, I mean, Mascuda is a prime example of the first park we bought, you know, there's it was like 22 tenants and we only had one park owned home and that one park owned home to this day has caused more problems <laughs> than any other of our parks. I mean, we've had like 20 different tenants in that home. It's been remodeled countless times. And so, you know, we sh- it's like that was a prime example of and, and then we still kept buying park owned homes and we have one we have one. Um, you know, one park in Toledo that, well, Dylan took that over in the transition, but it, I would say it was about 50% park owned homes. And, you know, we missed the mark by like probably a year on that one and just how long it was going to take to convert those, what the responsiveness was going to be from those tenants. And yeah, that's the one thing you can, you're banking entirely on speculation as to how they're going to react when you try and get them to buy the home or even give away the home. Cause you know, most, most time they're not in that great a condition to begin with or they're older homes. And so there's just uh yeah, especially, and then you're buying older homes and you're opening up just, I mean, that park specifically in Toledo, I mean, we were doing electrical work. We had to redo all the electrical, the plumbing. I mean, at that point, it's just diminished returns all the way around. And so yeah, I know guys who, if they have great systems in place, then they've got ways to make that a very lucrative part of the business, especially infill, you know, converting vacant lots, doing infill, adding values. It's great. It's just not my cup of tea right now, you know? Yeah. And um, we, you know, we do a lot of infill, uh, but there's no like secret sauce or anything. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of project management. We have four full-time project managers that that's all they do right? Like on new projects that their whole job is to find homes, you know, get them brought in, get concrete work, get utilities hooked up. So it's, it's just a ton of work and it's expensive, right? These aren't, these aren't, you can't outsource that. These have to be us based people that are going to spend, you know, a week out of the month on site meeting with these contractors and making sure that it's done right. So absolutely, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So I, I applaud you for kind of realizing, Hey, this isn't, this is outside of my lane. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm good at. And hey, an infill home here or there is great, but big, huge 20 plus home infill projects uh, is opportunity cost, right? Like if you can buy something else over here and it's just lower hanging fruit, easier turn and burn than buying something that's a big project and is just going to require, you know, 60, 70% of your time, you know, it's, uh, it could be more profitable. So, and that's exactly what I'll say just to touch on that. It just gives, it makes for easier conversations with my cash providers, with my lenders, you know, investors, because, you know, in the past it's like, okay, well, here's the projections, here's a business plan, you know, okay, by this quarter, we're going to ideally convert this many park on homes. And then it's like, okay, quarterly reports come out and then everything else, we hit all our other financials, everything, but those park on homes are that one thing that's like, oh, we're kind of missing that target. So why, why not just take, make sure that I worst case scenario, worst case scenario, if I do everything, um, 
as is and you know count infill as a cherry on top or anything new like you said as a cherry on top and the deal still crunches and we still meet our cash on cash return then great then that's a great deal i know that we can push you know to increase that occupancy and that's going to make it even of a better exit strategy kind of deal uh, but i just don't have to bank on that speculation yeah and i know you buy a lot of smaller parks or you have in the past you know tell us about that and how you get that to work in some of these you know tertiary midwestern <laughs> markets yeah 100% to be honest the the reasoning for that is more for you know i'd love to be buying bigger parks I do like the easy due diligence. You know, I, I, for me, it's easier to take, you know, sort of a small development or acquisition fee, like a $25,000 acquisition fee and do four deals a month or three deals a month kind of deal. than try and bank everything on one big, one big project or, and so especially, and then with my team size as we're scaling our team right now, you know, it's a lot easier. I, I like to be a lot more thorough these days on due diligence. I don't want to miss anything. And so, and then the the second reason is I, I have sort of a unique funding strategy in that I'm not really do, I'm not doing syndications or funds. I do all seller financing. And then my private my cash providers come in as second position or third position private lenders. Um, and I've been able to do that just by working, you know, working with a lot of newer investors, people who see my track record, newer lenders who are like, you know, and I and I have to explain to them the nuances of the tax differences of being a a lender versus a maybe an investor. Maybe you can go. Yeah, absolutely. That. You know, the second and third position leans on the real estate. Is that their collateral? You know, I was saying. You know, so your your cash providers, your equity providers, um, are second or third position leans on the property on the real estate itself. Yeah, like recorded positions. <clears throat> And the way that I, yeah, so the way that I um, incentivize them to do that is with really high interest, you know, typically 15%. That's just fixed 15% annualized interest and then monthly installments. There's no equity. <clears throat> and then the way that, you know, sometimes as you get into the more sophisticated investors and the higher check writers, the higher earners, you know, they need those tax benefits. And so in those yeah. situations, Still, I'll only work with maybe one cash provider and we'll just do a partnership. You know, they will get roles and responsibilities within the operating agreement. Um, and they will get, you know, their equity, but I don't do any hurdles or anything like that. I still set them up with a fixed interest because that's really at the end of the day, what they want to know is we're all in this for stability. We're in this, <laughs> the space for stability. So remove spe speculation from the equation. And, you know, as, as I get into bigger deals, it's, the reality is it would just make that that model a little more complex, you know, and so this is work for me. And then it's, it's uh, just buy more deals <laughs> yeah, kind of deal I mean, and tighten the criteria. And I totally get it. I think the biggest uh, misnomer about small parks is that they're harder to manage. Right. And I think that's 100% dependent upon the onsite manager that you can find. And if you can Absolutely. find a great onsite manager, you can make a small park work every day of the week. I'm under contract right now to buy two small ones. They're 30, one's 30 lots and one's 32 lots. They're near uh, or in the vicinity of some other bigger parks that we own. But I'm going in at 11 caps. Like these are 11 yeah. caps day one off current occupancy, current income. And it's like, okay, I can make this work. Like this, I can pay my onsite managers a little bit more and still make this deal work. So I, I do think that there's a niche there 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's going to be, it probably will be a little bit tougher to manage. And like, you know, in terms of like, you know, the management income that you're getting in the property management company for. And, and like you said, the exit strategy, it's like, all right, you're in a bit of a smaller market. Like, and, and then with, um, you know, but one thing I will say is, like you said, there's there's oftentimes these are more ma and pa. There's more meat on the bone. I mean, we're still doubling the value of these. We've we've hit our exits on these, and sometimes we just need to sell. You know, we rather than refinance, we sell. But all our a lot of times, even on our refi products with these smaller parks, we're working with local banks. Local um, banks, and we yeah. can, you know, and we can still get solid terms from local banks, um, or we can just sell. You know, a lot of this, it, it works if you're buying four small deals to sell two of them and refinance two of them kind of deal dependent mm -hmm. on. They so we just, you know, we're always yeah. being very proactive about our exit strategy and just um, making sure we drive value out the gate as quickly as possible. But yeah, like you said, especially when you're buying in various markets, it boils down to the systems you have in place for your, your management team. You know? Totally. Alex, tell us about your most recent mobile home park acquisition. You know, when that was, what did it look like? <laughs> so forth. Yeah, it was just recently, let's say it was what October was the recent mobile home park, 35 pads, about 800,000 seller finance. Can't think of the exact terms off my head, but it was good. 5% interest only and three years seller finance, but it's in a tornado zone. <laughs> it's in Lubbock, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my first deal buying in a tornado zone. I worked with one cash provider on that deal. We both are bullish on Texas and you know we everything about this park made sense fully occupied 35 lots fully occupied uh very city undervalued sewer. lot rents city water city sewer. all city utility all city utilities nice. 180 on the lot rents wow uh, market realistically is like 275 300 mm -hmm. um and so we're going in and it's really, yeah, they've just been deprived of management, deprived of groundskeeping. And so we're going in and doing a, a six month push. That's kind of our typical protocol, do a six month push to improve management, improve the systems, fix any potholes, attend to any needs of the tenants, and then, you know, start giving out notices for the, the rent raise plan. Uh, we've already given out our first notice and there's been good responsiveness to that. So, yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, we just did a lot of research. When was the last tornado? You know, what's what is the risk factor here? Um, you know, How looking you into the insurance. What's that? that? How did you find that deal? That was through a wholesaler. Yeah. And I will say most. Yeah. Right now, we're not doing any cold calling. I'm starting to build a cold calling team again. Uh, but I've been pretty lazy right now. It's like I just I'm on all the email lists. And it's, it's so easy to just pick up wholesaler wholesale deals, work with those guys. I get pocket listings from brokers. Um, so yeah, this was a, a wholesaler that I work with quite a bit who sent me this. Nice. And um, I mean, just we talked about park-owned homes earlier, but what other mistakes that you know that you've made in mobile home park investing do you think we could learn from? Yeah, great question. I think Dylan's touched on it before, but just not properly inspecting utilities. I mean, that's such a big one. Yeah. Understanding that not getting multiple quotes, you know, we work in various markets, we, we subcontract out pretty much everything. And so a lot of times it's a rush to get due diligence to renegotiate with the seller. So you kind of get that first quote back, renegotiate, 
And then when the when the next quote comes back, it's twice that and you've already closed. <laughs> and, you know, and so it's making sure that you've actually used your due diligence time to build your grounds team. Um, that's something we've not done in the past. And so now, you know, that's that's the first thing we do, you know, before inspection inspire, expires is make sure that we have, you know, if it's a new market that we have all the contract, we've had three quotes for everything and we've collectively as a team picked out which contractors we're working with. And then we go back and do any renegotiating with the seller. Gotcha. And you manage um, all the operations in-house, like any project management, any property management, it's all in-house. And what is your Everything's in-house, yeah, through our management team, yeah. Yeah, we have project management, construction management, leasing department, and you know, uh, upper management in each of those, and then VAs, VA assistants as well. We work with a lot of VAs. So okay, so how many people are on your team now? Fourteen right now, including VAs, and not not including site managers, obviously. Yeah. Nice, nice, Alex. What do you think are the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing in the mobile home parks? Yeah, it's a good question. I knew you were going to ask that, so I prepared for this question because one that's been asked to me lately that I never thought about, to be completely honest, is what do you do if if shit goes wrong? Basically, <laughs> like what? How do you replenish capital? Because I never thought about that. I never thought of like if, but for the most part, you know, we've never had to do like major capital calls or you know been, had to stop distributions or anything like that. So, you know, I've heard war stories from partners coming in, well, you know, this happened in the past and they brought other people in and they diluted our equity. And my, just personally, my, my mindset around that is I just have such a, such gratitude for my cash providers that if anything went wrong, it's, it's no question that I would find a way, whether I had to dig into my own pocket, refinance my house, whatever, you know, I personally guarantee all of those, those promissory notes are all personally guaranteed. Um, so I've started explaining that in my pitch, like, that's very clear. Like, just so you know, here's what what happens if something does go wrong. If I can't make a return, that comes out of my pocket. I don't take any fees. I just take, you know, I just get surplus proceeds after all debt providers have gotten. So these are debt providers. They have to get their interest. So I think, I think that's an important that. question. I think we should touch on that too, just real quick. Is like, since they're debt providers, they don't get depreciation. But sometimes you said you do allow like a split of, equity so they can get some depreciation because the tax benefits are something a lot of the LPs that I talk to are really interested in. Yeah, it just depends on who I'm working with. I'm very clear. So that was the second question I was going to go into is making sure you know your goals as a cash provider as to what you need for tax purposes. Because if you are someone in need of of getting some tax benefits, then you're not going to get that as a as a lien provider, as a debt provider, right? Um, you're you're 1099, and that's um, that's pure income. You're being taxed on income. So with the more sophisticated investors that I work with, so I'm always very clear. You know, here's the reality. But the benefit of this is, um, you know, you're going to get your fixed interest. There, these are a lot of guys who are got you know individuals who are used to you know getting their 7% in their 401k's or in a high yielding savings account 4%. So to go from that to 15% is very incentivizing. And sure. then they have to understand the risks associated with okay, but you are I'm seller financing this, your second position to the if there's multiple cash providers, you might be third position, right? And here's how the 
here's the legalities of that and how that works. So it boils a lot down to trust. It also boils a lot down to a lot of times we're only putting in 50 grand or 75 or 100 grand because I only need 300 grand, right? And then I still bring, you know, I'll, I'll cover the 50 grand or whatever's left over kind of deal. And then I build build their trust and they're like, hey, this works out. Let's do another one. I can also, it's not even syndicating without syndicating to give them equity post refinance, right? After they get liquidated at the end, I could give them a promise of 10% equity after that kind of deal, mm-hmm. right? So that's something I'll do as well. Hey, so let's do a one year. Also on these sh- smaller deals, I can do shorter horizons, two-year turnarounds. We've been pretty pretty on target with doing hitting our marks with two or three-year seller finance deals and refinancing or selling within that window. If I do refinance, a lot of times I'll promise my partner's equity post-liquidation as well. Interesting uh, model. Very interesting yeah. model, which, yeah, it definitely works with probably, you know, you know, such, very you such a little amount. Yeah, you need such a little amount for per deal that that could work. But um, that's interesting. Yeah, so as an LP, you definitely want to look into the deal structure and kind of fully understanding that because this is one unique way to structure it. Um, what else? What else, Alex? If you were a passive investor looking to invest in another GP or something into a mobile home park, what what would you tell them to look out for? What would you look out for? I think just um, I think doing your own due diligence on the park. I think it's probably been said on here before, but you know, if you're not investing in a fund, if you're investing in an individual deal, I think it's vital to you know because this should be a learning lesson. Unless you're truly just want you know, you could go invest in Vanguard <laughs> if you wanted to be completely passive, completely disconnected, you know, and that's not the experience that I try to create because most of these individuals are like, Hey, I want to learn. I want to get into this. Like, Hey, cool. You know, come, come partner with me and we'll learn. And it's a win-win for both of us. And so, um, it depends definitely on the demographic as you get into the more accredited investors, they really are just looking for that, you know, lucrative return on their investment and those tax breaks. But I think us operators, you know, we're, we are obviously, inevitably going to be somewhat biased. You know, we want to close on the deal. We want it to go right. And so I think my cash providers have brought up things that I didn't think about. And, you know, they say, well, what about this? And what about that? And I go, oh, yeah, maybe I should, you know, or do you really think we're going to hit that cap rate on the refi, you know, and then maybe we should adjust that. And I'll go back and under and adjust my underwriting. And I feel a lot better about it. And I'm like, hey, you know, they truly brought value to this by doing their own due diligence. And then they trust me in that, okay, he's going to like own up to maybe when things do go wrong, we're going to quickly adjust and he's not going to be too prideful to make an adjustment and be agile. So I think there's nothing wrong with auditing and and doing your due diligence. Of course, you got to trust the operator, but the deal is just as important, you know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I think understanding, you know, the deal structure you know, not waiting until you get your K-1 the following year to kind of say, oh, geez, there's not a negative number on here. What, what, I thought this was something different. So that's, that's important. Uh, Alex, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Fully occupied in, you know, the Sun Belt year-round market and um, year-round warmth and sun. <laughs> No frozen pipes, and then you know at least high eighties or or low nineties plus age homes, and um, 
you know, a live-in rockstar management, public utilities, paved roads. <laughs> I have one in Texas. It's been a great deal. It's is a beautiful park. They all the um, all the homes are 80s plus. We've we're on all public utilities. We've got um, covered car, you know, covered carports on all the driveways, and it shows. You know, our tenant demographic, the the energy of our tenants. You know, they're just in a better quality of mood, and so like that goes a long way for you know i think the the value of your park is like what how how is the overall feel the vibe the demographic and um so the small amenities matter you know uh we don't have any like high class parks with pools or anything like that but just anything with small amenities trees shade picnic tables common areas dog parks um you know keep your tenants happy yeah you kind of can tell, right? Even on Google Maps, if you're doing a drive-through of a community and it just looks, you know, it's not perfect, right? But it looks semi-clean and and well-maintained. Likely, from my experience, that's how it turns out, right? And the, the, the investment turns out to be that way. But in the ones that kind of look ratty and, and just really you know, super, super low income and the homes are kind of falling out of disrepair, you know, those are the hard ones. And that, that I, we've, we've passed on so many deals that penciled out at, you know, super high cap rates this year, but the average age of the homes was really old. They were smaller homes. And from experience, you're just going to have higher turnover in those types of parks. And, you know, in the early days, it was like, oh, you know, we got a $15,000 rehab budget for every park owned home. We, you know, we'll, it, we'll be fine. It doesn't matter. You could put $15,000 and put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig and your turnover, no one's going to want to live in that 12 foot wide home for longer than three months, especially if it's in a Northern state and it gets really cold and there's not a lot of insulation. So uh, we've learned the hard way on, on a couple of those as well. Well, until you've been inside some of those yourself personally and yeah. seen the layouts and how they're configured and you're like, Oh wow, we thought people could really live in these, you know, and it's, I've heard it said on this podcast before, but it's like, yeah, you know, that's fine. Even if you renovate it and make it look nice, what happens if you truly are going to hold this for five or 10 years when the, those 60s homes eventually like they turn to dust, you know, and yeah. it's like and then and then it's a far more cost than even a vacant lot at that point. And so and I've slept in a mobile home for a summer and you don't realize until you're in one how thin the walls are, how thin the floors are how the walls with, with a lot of wind or a storm, how you hear every raindrop and you kind of feel the walls, you know, moving in, a, in an older home. So it's just a, just a different respect, you know, when you've, when you've lived in one for a while on an air mattress, you know, in, in, the, in one of the bedrooms on the floor. But, yeah, I uh, commend you for that. I commend yeah. you for that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an adventure. Um, big, big project up in Iowa. But Alex... What do you think is the biggest threat to mobile home park investing? I think what we just touched on, I think the age of these homes, because as we lose existing homes and replace them with $100,000 homes and $160,000 homes, and we have these grandfathered parks that we can't bring new homes in or whatever the case is, and we have you know all these new apartments going up and the... I just think that's the biggest concern, you know, is... Um, trying to protect that diminishing supply. And of course, it's like, you know, we're, there's there's a lot of moves being made, but as costs go up, 
and and again these the cost of these homes like we talked about it's just not sustainable in certain markets and so that's where <laughs> that's where the the rv parks kind of came into play was like you know we we don't we don't like the transient or the the short term but but even just supplementing that if you can if you can get away with that depending on the ordinances where the park is you know bringing in rv sites is a, is a great option and you know doing monthly some supplementing that we've been able to take maybe an 85 percent occupied park in texas and just take those that other 15 percent and designate it as you know at the same monthly rate as the rv as the excuse me as the mobile homes but do it in rvs i think you know with the economy and the interest rates i really only see that helping our case right now i think there's going to be a lot of trading going on i think we we're going to have like that second cycle is like the month there's still mom pause and then there's also us operators that are kind of selling selling to the next set of operators you know and i think there's a lot of with as financial distress not only does that help the demand for the affordable housing but there's going to be more distressed sellers you know we're going to be wholesalers going to be getting some more juicy deals again so we're actually ramping up cold calling um i think that's my biggest concern is just supply right now so it's like all right let's start our acquisition team back up and start doing our own you know turning over our own rocks kind of deal yeah no that's always a good idea because there's there's always deals out there to be had well alex how can our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to do so uh either instagram just alex donalo or my website alexdonalo.com okay awesome well thank you so much alex for coming on the show really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me back it was uh, it was a pleasure being here Awesome. Yeah, for sure. That's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value-add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at PassiveMHPInvesting for photos and awesome videos from our recent Mobile Home Park acquisitions. Once again, that's at PassiveMHPInvesting on Instagram. See you there.